Our scripture reading for today is from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. This is found on page 2 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home as a gift from us. Let's go to the word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, uh, welcome. We're really glad that you're here at the, the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. If you're looking at me like, who? Like, what happened? Who is this guy? Uh, you're not alone. Uh, that's okay. Uh, you have no reason to know me at this point. So my name is, my name is Nathan. Uh, I have been a part of Christ Community for, for quite some time. I am one of your pastors, believe it or not, but I spend, I spend most of my, my Sundays out at our Olathe campus. And I've, I've recently stepped into a, a new role as one of our senior pastors, getting to work with all the campuses across all of our, our city together. And so uh, working with them, being with them. And uh, so here I am. You're stuck with me uh, for that. Sorry about that. Uh, I actually whispered to my wife uh, before I got up here. It's like, it's weird feeling a little nervous. Like, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, and yet you don't know me. So... Uh, it'll be okay, I'm sure. Um, let me just say, though, I, I bring you uh, greetings from our Olathe campus. Uh, again, that's where I spend most of my, my Sundays. Uh, things are a little chaotic there right now. Uh, some of you know that we're building because there's just so many people moving to our, our neck of the woods. Um, and so we're, we're building. It's, it's crazy. For those of you who participated with ReachKC um, and have been generous to that and for our project in Shawnee Mission as well, buying land, thank you so much for that. I mean that. I mean, this is, this is huge for us. I mean, we, uh, it's, it's so crowded there that three weeks ago, we actually started doing four Sunday morning services. We've done three for years, but uh, four is kind of a new ball game. So uh, I'm really, really glad to be with you this morning. Um, let them deal with, deal with that. But, but seriously, uh, greetings from Olathe as well as from all of our campuses. Uh, it's fun to, to be with you. Let me, let me share a little bit about myself, uh, just briefly. Uh, so I've, I've been a part of Christ Community since I was in high school. Uh, 20 years ago this fall, uh, as a senior in high school, my family started attending here, and God used this church to grab hold of my life. I went off to, to college and seminary, and 12 years ago, joined back on staff uh, as our, one of our pastoral residents. So if some of you are familiar with that, how we develop young leaders, I was uh, one of the first of that, that program, and that was, again, 12 years ago. And so looking back... Um, I've, I've been able to see some incredible things at Christ Community. Um, moving from one campus to five, I had the privilege of being a part of starting uh, our Olathe campus, which is our, our second campus, right, our, our move into multi-site. I, I still remember clearly uh, when I, where I was and when I was driving somewhere in Georgia when Tom Nelson, uh, one of our other senior pastors, called me and said, hey, this property in Brookside is being given to the church. Like, I remember, I remember that so clearly. And, and I was here uh, last Sunday uh, evening as we celebrated five years here. Man, it's incredible what God has done. 
And to think about this, this work across our city, it's such a privilege uh, to be a part. And I just want to say, like, like, I know I'm not here often, but this is an incredible church congregation here in Brookside. Um, Paul and Bill, they're great at telling stories uh, of life transformation, of what God is, is doing in this, this space. Uh, and to see the growth, the things that have happened, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and really, you, you have an incredible team of pastors here in this place. Uh, you know, Anna Lynn working with kids, John, Paul, um, Marcus now joining the team. Uh, and then there's that other guy. What's his name again? Oh, yeah, Bill, right? We love Bill, don't we? Don't you just love Bill? I love that guy. I mean, Bill, Bill is truly one of my absolute best friends in the whole world. That's not an exaggeration. It's not something I just say. Like, Bill and I, we love each other. We love hanging out together. Uh, Bill, let me, true story. So Bill and I, you know, I met Bill as... I came into the residency. He was leaving to go to Trinity. Uh, we just met kind of in passing, and then, you know, a couple years later, he was done with seminary, uh, and came back and joined. So we were colleagues first and kind of got to know each other. Like, who is this, like, super smart, nerdy, uh, sort of adorable kind of guy? Um, who is he? Uh, got to know him a little bit and became really, really good friends. And then uh, I remember, yeah, one, uh, one afternoon, I just said to him, Bill, you know, my, my sister Rachel is single. Um, I don't know if you know his wife's name is Rachel. Uh, so he married her. Um, he really respects my opinion, I think. Um, and so, yes, so Bill is my brother-in-law. Uh, Lucy and Isla are my dear little nieces. Rachel is my baby sister who I, who I love uh, desperately. So Bill and I, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time together. Uh, we work together, you know, we hang out together because we do like each other. We're at family gatherings together, holidays. We're going on vacation with our families next month for a couple days. We, we see a lot of each other. And let me just say, like, I, I have seen Bill in just about every context, and he is the real deal. Like, who you see up here is who he is, and man, what a great pastor. Like, I, I just, I hope you hear that. I hope you know that. Love on Bill uh, and Rachel. And I'm not just, hopefully I'm not just biased because he's, he's family now. But man, what an incredible, what an incredible leader. Um, and all, all of the team here. Um, let me also, just quickly, my family. So my wife, Kelly, I've got a, yeah, there's a picture of us in the Tetons the past summer. Uh, Kelly's her name. We've been married 15 years. And then uh, son David is 10 and daughter Eden is 8. And actually, when I told uh, my son that we were going to be at Brookside this morning, um, he so he got excited, you know, he's like, oh, you know, is Uncle Bill going to be there? I mean, and, you know, the girls and auntie, um, but really Uncle Bill is, he's the main, main event uh, with, with my son anyway. Uh, and I was like, no, no, they're out of town on their anniversary. They're, they're gone. He was just, oh, dad, then what's the point? <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know why you came. My son came to see Uncle Bill and, well, they're downstairs having fun, I'm sure. So Anyway, again, just welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in um, to God's word this morning. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for your church. God, I'm, I'm so thankful for these brothers and sisters that even though we may not know each other, you have called us on this mission together, first to know you and to be known by you, but also to do your work in your world through your people gathered and scattered. God, what a privilege that is that we get to do that here at Brookside, but also in uh, Olathe and Leewood and Shawnee Mission and downtown. God, what a joy it is um, that we are on mission together. Help us to do that well, to, to, to live into that with joy and, and synergy. Uh, and God, would you be with us now as we look at this ancient story? God, I pray that you would continue to speak and help us to see Jesus um, and ourselves as well, how we need him in these pages. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. 
Okay, so we've been in a bit of an unusual series for us these past couple months. If you've been with us any, any length of time, uh, a story worth, worth living, we've called it. And, and throughout, we've kind of been wrestling with looking at, you know, our various cultural stories, the stories that are told around us that end up impacting our individual stories. You know, so we've, we've used phrases like, you know, we started with, you only live once, right? Or, or you know, religion should be kept private. Or last week was, I decide what's right. Next week is the, the last one of the series, and it's newer is always better. We have these, we have these cultural na- narratives, these stories that influence us. And the reality is, because we live here and now today, like, we don't even really question them. We just sort of, like, assume these, or, or grab onto these faith assumptions. Let's, you know, call them what they are. And they deeply impact the, the way in which we live. They decide what's meaningful for us and how to make decisions and all those kinds of things. And, and there's a lot that's good about them. They're just, they're just not quite enough. Now, we've also said throughout the series that we're not the first people to deal with this, right? Uh, we, we've talked a bit about how, you know, as God's people left Egypt, as they entered into the land of Canaan, there are all kinds of cultural stories around them. Stories about how life should work and what's meaningful and how to make decisions. And God, in that moment, as he redeemed his people out of Egypt, he inspired Moses to write down these words, to give them their story, us, our story, our foundations for building and understanding our lives. So if you have a Bible or grab one of the pew Bibles, we're in in Genesis 3 this morning. Now, now, throughout this, this series, we've tried to kind of grab on to maybe a little phrase or something that we often use culturally to, that sort of summarizes uh, this idea. So that today, the, the idea, the phrase is, you do you. You do you. You know this phrase? Uh, some of you use this phrase. Others of you hate this phrase. Others of you are going to go home and Google this phrase. That's, that's okay. Two weeks ago, I had to Google it as well just to make sure I knew what it meant. Uh, getting old and out of touch, I guess, whatever. Um, but, but regardless, you do you, whether you know this phrase, use it or hate it or whatever, uh, regardless, almost all of us here believe this phrase. Or, or at least the, the religious or philosophical underpinnings of this, this way of life. Essentially, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a moral framework that when you're, you're faced with a decision, particularly a moral decision, how do you decide? Well, you take care of you. <laughs> I'll take care of me. Just mind your own business and do no harm, right? That, that's essentially the, the idea of you do you, right? You take care of you. Don't hurt anybody. I'm going to do my own thing and we'll just kind of, you know, keep our distance if we have to, right? Are you, are you with me? Now, individual freedom is, is a good thing. And frankly, if we all decided as a people to do no harm, we could probably do worse, right? And yet it's just not quite enough. There was an article uh, in the New York Times a little while back how you do you perfectly captures our narcissistic culture. Let me read just a tiny bit of it. The writer says, in a a world where the selfie has become our dominant art form, let that sink in for a second, I love that cynicism, phrases like, you do you, provide a philosophical scaffolding for our ever-evolving, ever more complicated narcissism. And and it goes on and continues that instead of serving the establishment, like when it comes to moral decisions, God, religion, social norms, family, tribe, whatever, instead of those those, those basis for decisions... 
you do you empowers the individual regardless, they, they say, regardless of how shallow that individual is. And even so, this philosophy, it, it persists. That if, if you just do you and do no harm, all will be right with the world. We can create a sort of utopia if we just sort of mind our own business. But is that true? What really happens when you do you? Well, to answer that, we have to look at the first place in which this philosophy was ever used. So be no surprise, right? It was in a garden a long, long time ago where we see the, the, the framework for morality begin to, to be seen for humans and we, we understand just a tiny bit of what temptation is and, and what sin is in the story. Not just theirs, Adam and Eve's, but really for, for all of us. As the serpent said to Eve, "Hun, you do you. Now, I realize in a, in a post-enlightenment world, the idea of Satan, right? Cosmic evil, right? This embodiment of, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for us to, to believe, isn't it? And, and then you combine that with, uh, with a talking snake, and it sort of feels like we might as well just be talking about the troll that lives under the bridge, right? It just feels so out of the realm of normal. Now, I realize, right, I'm with you, okay? There's lots of questions. I have questions. Uh, we can't answer all of those questions. I hope you've been texting your questions in uh, for our Facebook live stream on, stream on Mondays. There's, there's the number. Um, I'd love to see the other pastors squirm around. Tell me about talking snakes, okay? So text them that. Um, it's mysterious. And so we're not going to get into all of that. But here, here's what's really important. This, yes, it is mysterious. And yet there are times when it is not that hard to believe that there is cosmic evil out there, right? Like those moments you turn on the news and you see another school shooting? Or, or you see a nation ravaged by genocide or, or systemic racism? A terrorist attack? Like there, there are moments, no matter what you believe, whether, whatever your, your worldview or your background, there are moments in life when you cannot help but wonder, man, is there something out there trying to destroy us, right? Something trying to kill us. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, let's, 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 let's stop there, because again, this snake, he's not just a snake, right? He's the incarnation of evil. He's also the first theologian and philosopher, if you think about it. Uh, and he begins to eloquently shatter Eve's belief that God has been good to her. He hates God, and, and he would like to destroy God, but he can't do that, Right? So he attempts to do the next best thing, to destroy God's image, which is us, right? We are his representations here here on this earth. And so he attacks us with this sort of, uh, this desire for us to deny our humanity in a sense. That every every sin is an attack on, on God's image. And when we try to make ourselves more, we always end up with less. And he uses, the snake uses the, the only method he can, deceit, doubt, and this sort of subtle nudge at freedom. Which is really the first reason, I think, why a, a you-do-you or do-no-harm philosophy just doesn't work. I mean, it sounds so good, right? And yet it ignores a vital truth. That every choice is a battlefield. 
I know, sounds extreme, right? I get that. And yet, if this, if this story is true, I know, I know, but, but if it's true, then there is a war surrounding us of good and evil. And every, every choice you make, everything you do, every thought you have is forming you into somebody as well as the people around you. And we can be formed more into God's image or less. And the reality is, though, in our comfortable lives, we rarely even feel it, right? This, this battle that every decision matters, that nothing is neutral, that Satan is after the image of the God he despises. That life, like nothing's neutral. It is all a battlefield. I'm going to give an example. A couple, a couple weeks ago, Bill and I, uh, we went to see Ken Burns at, uh, at the Midland in Kansas City. And uh, Ken Burns, he's the, he makes these super long documentaries for PBS, right? Baseball, Civil War, that kind of thing. You're maybe familiar. Um, his newest one on the Vietnam War uh, has just been airing this week on PBS. It's 18 hours long. This is kind of what he does. Um, and, I mean, I like Ken Burns, but like Bill, I mean, he, it's, it was like a Justin Bieber concert for him. I mean, like, ah! Oh, okay, that's a little exaggeration. Uh, but, man, he, he is obsessed with Ken Burns, okay? And so Rachel didn't want to go, right? So I was his date. Uh, and we went together, and it was awesome, okay? So we got to, we got to see about an hour of the, the film on the Vietnam War. And then uh, he came out, as well as a couple others, uh, to kind of discuss the experience and describe some of what, what they found out in that, in that time. It was just amazing to hear. He's just a brilliant, brilliant individual. But one of the things that stuck with me the most is that he interviewed, both on camera as well as there that night, uh, this guy named John Musgrave, a, a veteran uh, who lives out in Lawrence. And he told part of a story. Uh, and the, the film version, as he's telling his story, it all went black, and you could just hear the sounds of gunfire around him and, and Musgrave describing the scene. It was just black. And, and he talked about wh- what it was like to be ambushed in the jungle on all sides, right, completely outnumbered. And, and quickly he was, he was hit, and he, he describes that he was l- lying there knowing that death was inevitable, right? He said he had a, a hole the size, big enough to put his fist in, in his chest. He was gone like hopeless. But he was a Marine. <laughs> and, and all of his soldiers around him at great peril themselves, they, they drag him out. Like many of them shot in the process, injured, killed. They bring him out and he's alive and he's, he's telling the story. And, and, and the reality is no soldier ever says, you know, you do you. I'll do me. And it's, it'll be okay, right? It doesn't work that way. There's just, there's too much at stake. And so, I, I mean, I've got I've to ask, do you believe that there is real evil in our world? Do you believe that there is something out there seeking to destroy, seeking to destroy God's image in us? If so, then every choice matters. Everything you do counts. Life is a battlefield and you cannot just do you. All right, go back to the story here. Look at the, look at the conversation they have. I mean, just, just to put it in context here, so Adam and Eve have unprecedented access to God. Like later on, we find out in the story that like, they would go on walks in the garden in the cool of the day, whatever that means, right? It's pretty amazing. Unprecedented access. But here, instead of talking to God, 
they engage in this little theological debate about him. Don't you wish they had just been like, hey, just wait a second. Let me talk to God. The first one. First one, the snake said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Eve, let me get this. Let me get this straight. Your good God made all of this for you and you can't eat any of it? What is his problem, right? Which isn't true. And, and Eve, she quickly corrects him, right? She, she, you know, she no, we can, we can eat of any tree. We just can't eat of, eat of that one over there. It's the only one. The rest is ours and we can, we can do whatever. But if we eat of that one, we're going to die. Oh, Eve, you're so naive. You won't surely die. Nothing bad is going to happen. You can eat that fruit and do no harm. But you notice where every temptation begins? I mean, it all begins just so subtly, doesn't it? So, it just seems so harmless. They're just having a little chat. Like, you, you think about, like, is this really how, how it ends, right? Is this really how everything breaks and falls apart? I mean, look at this story and think about the last time that you were tempted. Because I think, I think every temptation follows a very similar pattern. I mean, step one, right, we begin to doubt what God said, right? You see that there. Did God really say? What, 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 are, his, what are his intentions there, right? And we begin to, to question, yeah, we, we like the things that God said about love and forgiveness, but I mean, some of that other stuff that's culturally weird or just plain hard, I mean, surely he didn't mean us, right? He at least didn't mean me. I mean, did he, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? That's step one. It's just sort of questioning, doubting what God said. Because once we, once we do that, it's easy to go to the next step, right? Of, of step two, doubting God's love. I think every temptation goes there. Every temptation paints the creator in a negative light. Like, what's this guy's problem? Why is he so stingy? Like, why can't, why can't we have that piece of fruit? I mean, who cares about all the other kinds there, right? Too bad you can't eat from any of those trees. Makes them worse, right? God didn't say that, but it's, you know, it tries to make them worse. It makes them more, more restrictive. And verse 5, then, the snake says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, temptation always says, God is holding you back. He doesn't know what's best for you. Like, if he, if he only knew you, then come on, it'd be okay, right? If he only loved you, if he only cared about me, then it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And we imagine him as this cosmic killjoy. Like, and who wants to obey God like that, right? And then the third step. <laughs> I mean, once you're doubting what God said and you're doubting God's love for you, the next step is just so easy, isn't it? This subtle nudge towards what feels like freedom. I mean, it just seems so much better now, doesn't it? Eve, you could be like God. Like, you don't have to, you don't have, to have these restrictions on you, these boundaries. You can know right from wrong. Nobody has to tell you what to do anymore. And Eve, she didn't even know what she wanted until this moment, right? She didn't know that she wanted more, that something had been left out her life. But all of a sudden, she doesn't feel free anymore. 
One Old Testament scholar writes, the essence of the serpent's message is that God is limiting Eve, restricting her from her full humanity. Today we hear this philosophy everywhere, be liberated, be free, self-actualize, unleash your inner potential. Whenever you hear this, have no doubt that what you hear is the hiss of the serpent, the temptation to become something apart from what you were created to be. I gotta tell you, I kind of feel for Eve in this moment, don't you? It's like all of a sudden she realized that there is there's a restriction on me. Like God has, has said no to this, this one thing in my life. Like her freedom is, is restricted, but, but what do you think? Was she freer in her submission to God? Or freer in her rebellion? Because today you and I, and let's just be honest, right? We believe that, that the good life, the true life, the free life, we've got to cast out all boundaries, right? Like nobody can tell me right from wrong. Nobody, like I have to be able to decide. Otherwise, I'm in, I'm in a prison, right? I, I can't be who I, who I am, who I, who I want to be. Any, any rule, any boundary is, is cast aside. What if those boundaries are for our good? I mean, what if I don't really know what's best for me? And yet we humans, we're like the, the train that curses the tracks, right? Stupid tracks. Always telling me where to go, what to do. I want to be free. Like today, today I decide, right? And we think, yeah, we think we're free, don't we? Do you ever wonder if maybe, just maybe, the greatest freedom in life comes through submission. Submission to the one who made both the train and the tracks. Besides, I mean, we're all submitting to someone, aren't we? I mean, Eve thinks she's choosing freedom, but she's just submitting to the snake, right? You gotta serve somebody. What if instead we just obeyed? That seems too hard, right? I mean, besides, in some ways, it feels like a moot point. I mean, for, for Eve here, and, and us, us with her, right? Let's not be naive. We're there, and we would, have, we would have done the same. We do worse all the time. Sometimes, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Like, we, we put Adam and Eve's sin in this, like, huge cataclysmic category of awfulness because they ate a piece of fruit, right? I mean, you and I did worse than that before breakfast, didn't we? And yet, look at, look at how, how it goes. Hmm. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now I'm free. Free like the wind of a hurricane. And here's Here's the real reason you can't just do you and do no harm. And I know, even as I say it, you're probably not going to believe me. I don't even believe it half the time myself. I'm convinced that it's true. I'm convinced it's what this story is about. But I know how hard it is to root this deep in my life. But here it is. Every choice, every, every sin, sorry, every sin ruins everything. Every sin ruins everything. 
I told you you wouldn't believe me, right? It's like, really? Come on. Can't be that bad. But here, here's the ultimate example, right? Again, we pick on this as some, some unique case. And yes, it is, it is unique, but I mean, here's the ultimate example. With a bite, death comes. With it, divorce and rape and oppression and slavery, all of it comes in. Like Adam and Eve, their first child would become the world's first murderer. That's how long it takes for sin to ripple. Cancer breezes through the window. Disease, greed, selfishness, all of it comes in. And friends, that is not just what happens with this first sin. If every sin is a battle for God's image in me, if every, if every sin is a rejection of his love, then every sin shapes you and shapes everyone around you for you are becoming the kind of person, I'm becoming the kind of person that chooses those things. And if we think that's not going to have ripple effects to others, we're naive. I mean, lust is kind of the easiest example. I think we could play this game with, with any sin, but lust, right? Because lust is the classic, well, just don't hurt anybody, right? Who cares? It doesn't matter. What you do in private, who, like, it's just, it doesn't matter, Right? And yet, I mean, studies, studies show that if, if this is part of your life, like that you are, you are actually rewiring your brain to objectify 50% of the population. Like that's, that's happening inside you. Like you're, you're approaching people of the opposite sex differently. Like if you don't think that's going to affect your relationship with your spouse, right? Or, or your relationship with every other person on the planet of the opposite gender. If you don't think it's going to affect that, you are, you're a fool, not, not to mention the way that that feeds into the sex trafficking industry in our world. And if you're, I mean, like your son, don't think he doesn't notice the way you look at other women. Your daughter will notice it as well. And the ripple effects, they just keep spreading. And not, not just this sin, this area, but everything. We are constantly being formed Voltaire once said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. That's kind of how we feel, isn't it? And really, even the phrase, do no harm, I mean, on the one hand, it, like, it sounds so good, right? Just don't hurt anybody. But can you and I in this room even agree on what's harmful and what isn't for another human? Like, even in this room, we disagree on what's really harmful, and so think about that, like in cultures around our world today, people who have deep disagreement on what, what is and isn't harmful, like at the end of the day, if your philosophy for morality is do no harm, what you're, what you're really saying is that my culture today, the one I live in right now, is the best culture that's ever been. We finally arrived. We have no mistakes, no blind spots. We've got it right. And so my definition of harm is the one for everyone. And so not, not only is do no harm just completely inadequate, it's also arrogant, filled with cultural superiority. And again, we could, we could do this all day. We won't. But in that, in that moment, like with one taste of the fruit, verse 7, just, just feel this verse for a moment. Then the eyes of both were opened. Open to what? <laughs> and they knew that they were naked. 
which is a, a statement of much more than what they were wearing, right? It's so much more than that. There, there we stand, we humans, exposed for all that we've done, everything that we are, and they feel shame. Imagine what it would be like to feel shame for the very first time. They, they lived in the garden, right? In perfect relationship with God and one another. And all of a sudden, this stranger comes in, right? Deep within their soul of regret, of pain, of worthlessness. Of course, they hide from God. And they start blaming each other. They don't trust each other. Like, humans don't do that anymore, right? And we've been, we've been blaming each other ever since. And the ripple effects, they just keep spreading. I mean, some of us right now are drowning in shame. Others of us are caught up in this cycle of blame, right? It's always somebody else's fault. And yet we call it freedom. How do we get back to the garden? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Whether you believe that there ever was a garden, right? Don't you want to go back? Like, even if, even if that means that we have to submit to this one outside of us and not eat the fruit of this one tree, like, like don't you want to go back to a place of, of innocence, of, of freedom, of, of life? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And I want to I recommend just three short prayers for us this morning. In those moments of temptation, later on today, later on this week, those moments when you are wooed, when I am wooed by a substitute freedom with something that looks so good, so free, so fulfilling, but I know it's a substitute, like to to pray these things. And, And frankly, whether you're a Christian or not, if you want to be free, pray these things with me. First, in those moments of temptation, simply pray, Father, show me where this road ends. Show me where this road ends. Just stop. God, just, what are the consequences? What am I not seeing here? Who am I becoming in this moment? How am I forming the people around me, the ones that I love? What, where does this, like, it doesn't feel like it goes there, but where does this road that I'm starting on the path of, where does it lead? Second, Father, remind me what I really want. I've been praying this one quite a bit these past couple of weeks. This one, for some reason, it just grips me. Father, remind me what I really want. Not what I think I want. Not what I want in a moment of desperation or loneliness or fear or weakness, but what I really want deep inside me. Remind me, Father, that what I, what I want is, is pleasure. Not, or not, not just pleasure, but joy. Not just money but security, not just success, but an identity. Remind me, God, that you promised this th- to me through Jesus. R- remind me that I want a relationship with my kids more than I want the admiration of others towards them. Remind me of that, God. Remind me that I want intimacy more than sex, that I'd rather be known for generosity than the kind of car that I drive. Remind me, God, that when I get to the end of my life, I'm going to want to look back and I want to, I want to see hours of, of love and service, not the long list of everything I ever watched on Netflix. God, remind me what I really want. And finally, Father, cover me with your love. Most importantly, cover me with your love. Because you kind of got to, 
I mean, you got to imagine being God for a moment. I mean, as best we can, I know. Hopefully that's not too blasphemous. But, like, put yourself in his place. Like, he just made humans, us. He made this incredible guard. He's given them everything. He's given them himself. And they're like, ah. We're going to go with the snake. We're going we're gonna to do it our own way. Thanks, but, but no thanks. I mean, imagine what that had to be like for him. And, and, and like, what would you do, right? But our, our God, listen, he doesn't destroy us. He doesn't tell us to get over it, you know, suck it up. There's feelings of shame. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us that, well, you made your bed. You better start working it off, right? Make it up to me. No. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Can you believe that we have a God so tender who looks at our shame, the ways in which we've made a mess of everything, and he offers, us to, to, offers to cover us, to clothe us, and, and he promises to, to one day make it right and to do battle with the serpent. Because we know, don't we? Like, clothes aren't enough to cover our shame. No amount of good works can do it, or success, or the approval of others. No amount of our own sort of personal freedom, right, can cover it. It'll never be enough. Only God can cover us. And not just with animal skins, but with the death of his son. The cost of our freedom is death, but our God willingly comes. He he takes on that death for us. He dies on the cross. He suffers for all of our shame, all of our regret, all of our pain, all of it. He takes it upon himself, and yet he he doesn't stay dead. He he tramples on the serpent, right? Through his his resurrection, and he promises to do the same for all who trust in him, to to redeem us, to to make us whole, and to begin that process in us, even even now, and then to, to one day walk us back into the garden, the new creation. Friends, he loves you too much to let you do you. Let him clothe you instead. For it is in submission to him, the one who made you, who knows you, who loves you, covered by his love, that's where we find freedom. And this morning we get to to celebrate that by gathering around his table. 